Let's pray as we come to hear from God's word. Uh, Our gracious Father, we do thank you that you're the God who speaks. Your word is truth and your word is food for our souls. And so please help me now in my weakness to speak it uh, clearly and faithfully as I should. And in your kindness, I pray that you'd work to fix our eyes on Jesus, to refresh our hearts, renew our minds and cause us to live for him, for his glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think teaching religion to children is one of the greatest evils in our world. Uh, This was the response I got from a guy that I'd just met when telling him what I do, that is, that I work for a church with teenagers. I think teaching religion to children is one of the greatest evils in our world. It's not exactly a motivating response, is it? Uh, And I think dealing with discouragement has been one of the biggest challenges I've had uh, since beginning full-time ministry. From comments like these to seeing teenagers embrace the world and abandon Jesus, uh, from seeing the consequences of sin in their life or in my own. And these discouragements uh, are not unique to people who work in ministry, but part of the Christian life. And I'm sure I don't have to persuade many of you of that reality. Whether it's the scoffing of a colleague, the sly comments from friends, or just being excluded. And this is all easily intensified as we look more broadly at social commentary. It seems that Christians are being told to get out of politics, the church out of our community, and especially Jesus out of our schools. And so whether it kind of comes and hits you like a sudden flood, or is more of a slow accumulation, discouragement ebbs and flows for a Christian. And I doubt anyone knew this better than the Apostle Paul. Uh, Last week in Ephesians chapter 2, he's just explained to us the glorious plan of God to bring both Jew and Gentile together as the body of Christ, as the church, verse 22 last week, a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And like he did at the end of chapter 1, after explaining the rich and wonderful truth of God's blessing and saving work in Christ, he's going to pray. Pray that they'd understand, enjoy, and apply these rich truths. And he begins to do that in verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he stops kind of mid-sentence. And we know that he's about to pray uh, because this language of for this reason is how he prayed in Ephesians 1 verse 15. Then in Ephesians 3 verse 14, at the end of our passage, he says again, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and then he prays for the Ephesians until verse 21. And it seems as Paul begins to pray, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ and it prompts him to address the fact that he's writing this letter from prison. Perhaps the Ephesian church had heard about his suffering and imprisonment and were quite concerned about it. Uh, It does seem, doesn't it, like a bit of a setback. It's a bit confronting to their confidence in God if he is unable, who is God who's in control, God who's good, and he seems to be unable to look after his people. He can't even keep Paul out of prison. Does he care? Can he provide? And so verses 2 to 13, Paul takes this deliberate pause to talk about himself and to address his situation and to make sure that they aren't 
discouraged. Verse 13, he says, I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. And as he writes this, we get this kind of amazing insight to who Paul is, what makes him tick. It's Paul unplugged, off script almost, as he talks about his own life and about his own ministry and the supreme joy in knowing, following and proclaiming Jesus. It's why from the very beginning he makes it clear in verse 1 that he's a prisoner, yes, but not of Rome or of Caesar, but of Jesus. He doesn't want them to think about his life in human terms. He's been taken captive, but not by a cell, by Christ. His allegiance to Jesus is so strong that if proclaiming Jesus means prison, then to prison he'll go. His whole life is so under Christ that that even includes prison itself. And as you read verse 1, you can't help but get the sense that if Paul was around today, he'd be branded a religious nutter, some radical that's lost his mind and is probably even dangerous. But we know better. The risen Jesus not only demands that our whole life be captivated by him as we deny ourselves and take up our cross, but has shown that he alone is worthy of it. Because what Ephesians 3, 1-13 beautifully does is show us that what we've unpacked over the last few weeks in Ephesians 1 and 2, Christ's saving and unifying work expressed in the church, these are not just kind of nice things to know or ponder, but earth-shattering realities that change everything. And so as we listen to Paul this morning, it's worth asking, are you even remotely similar? Because what he describes here is not meant to be abnormal. Paul has been joined by thousands of others in the history of the church who have been so captivated by the gospel that they have endured loss of comfort, family, safety, or even their lives. Because just as we can go through discouragement as Christians, how easily do we drift into mere formalism as we just go through the motions? Yeah, we watch the live stream, we Zoom after the service, we share in our growth group, we pray with our kids, we even serve on a roster. But it's all about as routine and heartfelt as emptying the dishwasher or brushing our teeth. And so as we listen to Paul this morning, ask yourself, is there even a whiff of this kind of enthusiasm, joy and conviction in your Christianity? How compelled, fired up and captivated by Jesus are you? And what Paul tells us about himself to discard discouragement uh, breaks nicely into two sections, uh, and these are in your handout. Uh, It's as if he gets kind of so carried away that in verses 2 to 12 in the original, there are actually only two sentences. Uh, And both of them begin with and focus on grace. They must not be discouraged, just as Paul isn't, because both receiving and proclaiming the gospel are gifts of grace, undeserved blessings and privileges, even if they include suffering. So let's look at the first reason in verses 2 to 7. He says in verse 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. 
Uh, Paul was a man who loved sharing his testimony. It's recorded multiple times uh, in Acts. And he says to the Ephesians, like, surely you've heard about what happened to me, how I was saved on the road to Damascus and given the unique role and commission to bring the gospel to you Gentiles. Uh, We heard it read for us in Acts 9. He says in verse 3 that it came to him by revelation. That is, Jesus himself appeared to Paul to give him understanding of what he describes as a mystery. And that word mystery is one of the key words of the passage. It's in verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. And by mystery, he doesn't mean some kind of complicated or complex, unknowable problem. He's not talking about something dark or obscure. By mystery, he means something that was formerly hidden, but has now been revealed. It's like an open secret almost. And this is made clear in verse 6 where Paul just tells us what the mystery is. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery. And you might be thinking, that's it? That's just what he said last week in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And that's true. Uh, And it's easy for us, I think, to miss what a big deal this mystery is when we are familiar with it. Imagine living in first century Ephesus. Uh, You've worshipped at the temple of Artemis your whole life with your whole family and virtually your whole community. Then you find out that not only is your God fake and useless, the true and living God that you've ignored your whole life is actually deeply offended by your idolatry. You've completely ignored him. You've followed a God that doesn't speak or do anything, and God is angry about it. You deserve his judgment. And as you sit there kind of overwhelmed by the foolishness of your whole life following an idol, you're told that actually the real God will forgive you, completely accept and welcome you if you only turn to him. And you're sure of this because he sent his son, his perfect son, to die for your forgiveness. And you're not going to kind of crawl back as some second-class citizen. In verse 6, Paul tells us that there are three amazing privileges. You're an heir together with Israel, that God's promise to Abraham of blessing that you've never heard about, well, that's actually yours now. You're a member together of the one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul is essentially summarizing and recapping what he said in chapter 2, that by faith in Jesus, you're part of the body of Christ, the languages of unity and belonging. And further, you've received God's promise, Holy Spirit, God poured into your heart and the guarantee of your future with God forever. Now, hopefully you don't have to imagine how good it would be to hear that news because that's the news you heard when you became a Christian. In verse 7, Paul says that the mystery he received is then the gospel he proclaimed and we have received that same gospel when we became Christians. That although we were, as Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 12, separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world, That has all been changed, for we are now united to Christ and each other. We've been given hope by knowing God himself. 
It's no wonder that Paul says that receiving the gospel, it's a privilege, an undeserved gift. And this is especially the case because he goes on to say that all human history has been pointing towards and centres on this mystery being revealed. Verse 4, the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Do you see what he's saying? The mystery, the gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it offers all people, Gentiles included, has now been made clear. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, they all got glimpses for sure, but they didn't get the full picture that we do through the apostles and prophets. Now, he's not saying the gospel is some innovation made up by Paul. Uh, It's good news that was promised, pictured and anticipated in the Old Testament. But the precise nature of how God would achieve this, saving both Jew and Gentile together to become the body of Christ, well, that was a mystery. And that revelation has come now to Paul and to the apostles and prophets who now come then to us as we read their testimony in our New Testament. It's why Paul said last week in chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostles and prophets who taught the gospel are the foundation of the church. It is through them that we know this mystery, that God would save through a great king who was also a suffering servant, that God is absolutely just yet rich in mercy, that God has saved through a prophet greater than Moses, a priest greater than Levi, and a king greater than David. That all of God's promises are found there, yes, in Christ. And it's not that we just kind of know what happened, but we know how it changes everything. That in Christ we have received every spiritual blessing as sinners are saved and the spiritually dead are brought to life by grace. That yes, we were deserving of wrath, but we are now loved, adopted, forgiven, and promised unceasing kindness. Do you realise what a privilege and undeserved gift it is to know the gospel of grace? It's why Paul doesn't simply say that this is his own privilege in verse 3. He reminds them that he shared it with them. He says, I've written to you briefly about it. Uh, It's a reference to what he said in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. But then he continues in verse 4, In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He doesn't want the Ephesians or us to just sit back and be go, well, good for you, Paul. No, we share in this privilege too. And Paul is urging us to see it that way. But do you? It's kind of so easy, isn't it, to just go through the motions Listening to sermons are about as common as spreading jam on toast. The letter to the Ephesians, well, you probably studied it in CU or in your growth group. You've heard a sermon series on it before. What more can there be? It's so easy for us to be content with what we know and understand to the point where we have lost all awe and zeal. I see it all the time in our youth group as children of believers moan about the fact of being raised by Christians. 
And I think we know that we have slipped into this too when we no longer expect God to surprise, encourage or change us through his word. Think about it. What did you pray for this morning? What are you expecting or hoping for when you open your Bible or even when you turned on the live stream this morning? And I think we've especially fallen into this when we, not, when we see that our comments and reflections on church or sermons are just criticism. It was a bit dry and boring, wasn't it? Very long. Not how I would have done it. We have to fight this kind of complacency. Knowing the gospel that can bring all people to know Christ himself, that brings every spiritual blessing that unites both Jew and Gentile as the body of Christ, it's a privilege from start to finish, an unending joyful pursuit from which we must never grow tired. It's why after unpacking these rich and wonderful truths, both in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, Paul prays for depth of insight and for growth. There is a beauty and a depth beyond our comprehension to grasp and enjoy. It's why Paul himself says in Philippians, he considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Is that you? Do you pray and long for insight and depth? Have our weeks in Ephesians 1 and 2 left you in awe, caused your thankfulness to grow and your joy to be on display? Or is it just business as usual with another sermon? Paul is showing us, and he makes it very clear in verse 7, that becoming a Christian is not kind of just signing on to a few truths and getting the heaven card. It's about being mastered by Christ where our whole life is now changed. Knowing the gospel is a gift of grace. It's where Paul begins in verse 2 and finishes in verse 7. But notice that as he clarifies that it's only by God's grace that we receive the mystery of Christ, he wants to make clear that it's by grace alone that we can proclaim the mystery in the gospel too. Verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Uh, now when Paul says that uh, he is less than least, than least of all the Lord's people, he obviously doesn't mean he's conducted an exhaustive study of all the converts and found that he was the worst of them. Uh, Nor is this kind of some sort of self-hatred. Rather, it's as Paul reflects on and celebrates the grace of receiving the mystery of Christ, he shows how deeply aware he is of his own unworthiness and sin, that he who is least now gets to preach the boundless riches of Christ. Now, we don't share in Paul's specific role and commission in gospel ministry. But we know the same gospel that comes with the same privilege. 
The very structure of this passage in Ephesians 3 shows us that those who by grace come to know the gospel receive the privilege to tell it. Uh, At the moment, many of us are going through uh, the Empowered Evangelism training course, how to speak about Jesus naturally. But often when talking about evangelism for Christians, there's a bit of a pattern. Yes, we know we should do it, even though it's so awkward and costly. And most of our effort in these courses is so often spent convincing ourselves and others that at the end of the day, it's really worthwhile and we should just do it. But that language, that idea could not be further from Paul here, could it? Speaking of Jesus is not some burden to endure. He doesn't have to. He gets to. Uh, Since becoming a father, I've thought lots about what I would love to provide for my son. How can I set him up for the future? And I find myself often just kind of thinking about what I would love to do with some more money. Be so good to be able to buy an investment property for him. Set up a term deposit that he would be able to buy his first car or even go through uni debt free. I'd love to get him an MCC membership. And I think we often like to ponder, don't we, what we could do with more money. Not just for our kids, but for ourselves. Finally upgrade the car, an overseas holiday or finally renovate. And while all these things might be good in and of themselves... We must never forget the abundant wealth that we have in telling people the gospel. Verse 8, the gospel proclaims the boundless riches of Christ. Is that how you think about and speak about the gospel? Is that what you model to your children, to your neighbours or to your colleagues? That earthly riches can never compare to the glory of beholding God in the face of Christ. Are your family devotions, your personal Bible reading and prayer, your church attendance, a routine to endure or riches to behold? Because in the gospel we have not just boundless riches to enjoy, but to proclaim. And this is no burden for Paul. It's a joyful book privilege because when we proclaim the gospel, we are giving people what they need to hear. Look at verse 9. The NIV says it's to make plain, but it's more literally to enlighten. As we proclaim Jesus, we need to remember who we're speaking to, people who are in darkness, who are lost, who are dead in sin. We're never going to see proclaiming Christ as a privilege if all we see in our friends and family and neighbours are comfortable people who are nice, who live nice lives and might be interested in dabbling in a bit of spirituality. Because whether they're middle class or unemployed, whether a student or a doctor, married or single, the gospel is needed by all. It's why Paul clarifies in verse 9, there's only one God who created all things. One God to whom we must all give an account. One God who is working out his plan to bring all things under Christ. And so as we see the gospel as boundless riches that address everybody's greatest need, we too will speak. Uh, John Stott beautifully summarizes it. He says, Once we are convinced that the gospel is both truth from God and riches for mankind, 
nothing will be able to silence us. And we speak, I think, of what we value, don't we? What excites us. When the Hawks won the three-peat, my joy overflowed to speak to everybody, especially Geelong fans. When I saw Avengers Endgame, there was a sense in which if I didn't talk about it, I'd explode. And when my son Thomas took his first steps, everybody had to hear about it or see it. We speak of what we love, what excites us. And Paul shows us this because he shows us he's excited about what the gospel brings about in verse 10. He says, God, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul told us that God has a grand plan for the world to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And how is God doing that? Well, central to the plan, according to Ephesians 3, verse 10, is the church. I actually think you can summarize the letter of Ephesians as 3.10 until 1.10. As the gospel is preached and people respond, people come to know God himself, verse 12, that in and through Christ we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The gospel creates the church. As people hear it and respond, they then become God's people in God's Presence. That's what Paul said at the end of chapter 2. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place where, uh, of God where he lives by his spirit. And so as God's dwelling place, the church now functions as his masterpiece, his display home, that he has decided that his diverse, his plentiful, his wonderful, his manifold wisdom is on display through the church. God is declaring his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that is, spiritual forces who are both good and bad like angels. The church permanently has an audience of these heavenly beings, that our existence and our gathering is a declaration to them that Christ and Christ alone rules. The church is the tangible evidence that God really is bringing all things under Christ. And so how big, how important, how wonderful is your view of the church and your place in it? And you just thought, right, that you were live streaming at home in your pyjamas. Now, some of us might actually feel that this is a bit underwhelming, right? The church is God's wisdom on display, but it's so full of hypocrites, so unimpressive. But here is the unambiguous declaration from God himself about how important and central the church is to him. It's why the only command in Ephesians 1-3 is to remember what God has done in bringing both Jew and Gentile together as the body of Christ. It's why Paul will spend Ephesians 4 to 6 telling us how the church must behave based on who she is. And so, 
How do you view the church? Do you value your place in the church as much as God does? Your attendance, your participation, your service and fellowship and prayer are all part of God displaying his wisdom. But Paul's point here is not to unpack the purpose and beauty of the church. He's been there and done that in chapter 2. His point is that as the gospel creates the church and the church displays God's wisdom to the heavenly audience, he willingly suffers to be part of that mission and they should not be discouraged. Verse 13, I ask you therefore do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. The gospel brings people to know Christ, to share in his glory both now and forever. And for Paul, he's saying, what could be more worth suffering for than that? But what about you? Are you discouraged? Have you let the potential cost of proclaiming Jesus render you silent? Have past experiences left you questioning whether it's even worth it? Uh, and whether it's a, a love of comfort, protecting your own reputation, or just a lack of love for the lost, it is worth our time to reflect on what is keeping us silent. Sometimes we can even be so persuaded that nothing good is even going to come from asking the question or extending the invitation. And so this passage is an essential reminder for us. A few months ago, Holly and I were at a wedding uh, and the mother of the bride was about as enthusiastic and unapologetic as a Christian gets. Uh, she was a recent convert and the first in her family. Uh, and having just met us, she was so overjoyed and encouraged to meet other Christians and so encouraged she was that she then proceeded to go around almost the entire wedding and ask the guest if they were Christian too. And when she received no after no after no, she would just bluntly ask them, why not? And then even one lady, when she said no, she smiled at her and said, don't worry, we'll get you eventually. Now, I know when it comes to talking about evangelism and being that kind of unapologetic, overt Christian like Paul, our natural reaction is just to think that it just doesn't work. It just puts people off, right? We know that. And in part, I think that actually did happen uh, at the wedding. But as I thought about this lady's example and as I thought about this passage, upon reflection, I think most of us are more likely to be at the opposite end, right? We're so often disappointed and surprised when our friends and neighbours don't ask us how to become Christian, despite the fact that we've never said anything or shown ourselves to be any different. We're shocked when our kids aren't converted, even though we've never really asked them or given them time and energy to show them why it's the best thing they could possibly do. Uh, you might have heard of Guido de Braze, was a 16th century reformer who was thrown into prison for his reformed faith. Uh, he was put into a black hole, which was a, a dungeon known for being dark, cold, damp, and rat-infested. Uh, here's a, a portion of a letter he wrote uh, to his wife while in the black hole. He says this, My dear and well-beloved wife in our Lord Jesus, your grief and anguish are the cause of my writing you this letter. 
I most earnestly pray that you not be grieved beyond measure. We knew when we were married that we might not have many years together. The Lord has graciously given us seven. If the Lord had wished for us to live together longer, he could have easily caused it to be so. But such was not his pleasure. Let his good will be done. Moreover, consider that I have not fallen into the hands of my enemies by chance, but by the providence of God. All this has made my heart glad and peaceful, and I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to be glad with me and to thank the good God for what he is doing, for he does nothing but what is altogether good and right. And I pray you then be comforted in the Lord, to commit yourself and your affairs to him. He is the husband of the widow, the father of the fatherless. He will never leave nor forsake you. A few days later, on May 31st, 1567, at age 47, he was publicly hanged in the market square. As he was pushed off the scaffold, he urged the crowd to be faithful to the Bible. He was then buried in a shallow grave where his body was later dug up and torn apart by wild animals, just to make a point. But this is the kind of commitment that many are still showing today. Like our brothers and sisters in Christ that we know and pray for in other places of the world where following Jesus is instantly costly. And this is the kind of commitment that Paul had and it's the kind of commitment and vision of the gospel that we need. And how do we get it? Well, Ephesians 3, 1 to 13 is actually telling us that we already have all we need as we share the insight into the mystery of Christ. So let's pray that we would be so captured by the gospel that we'd share in that privilege of proclaiming it, even if it's costly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel, the joy in coming to know Jesus, to being united to him and each other. Please capture our hearts afresh this morning, that it would be our heart's desire to know Jesus more and to share in that privilege of making him known. Father, we confess that we have so failed in this, so forgive us, forgive our cowardice and our apathy, our fear of people, our lack of love. Work in us, we pray, and work through us, we pray, for our good and for your glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.